I want to encourage you to take that Bible and open it to the book of Daniel. To the book of Daniel, we come back, we're kind of, uh, it's okay, uh, I, I want to say flying through it, but that's not fair. It's, it's a narrative, it's different than an epistle. And so we're looking at the big picture, and we looked at Daniel 2, 1 through 30 last week, and then we're going to look at 2 31 through 45 today, and of course the Lord's table is set for us so that we could remember Christ's death on our behalf. Maybe as you're turning to Daniel 2, let me bow us in a word of prayer. Father, we are uh, an extremely needy people, needy for your word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Father, here you've designed worship. We're, we don't just do this, Lord, we know that, but they, they gathered together on the first day of the week, and one of the things they gave themselves to is to the apostles' teaching and certainly the apostles and the prophets. And so we're in Daniel and we need a glimpse of you today. May Jesus Christ be clearly seen. May you wrestle each and every heart. May you grant clarity to such a big portion of scripture. And we're gonna trust you to do a work that we'd be different because we've gathered together because we know the promise that your word does not go out without returning its purpose that it was set forth to. So Father, do that, we pray in Christ's name, amen. In the United States, they say that 125 million people believe in astrology, the study of the stars and the reading of human affairs. Of course, we would think much of that as demonic in nature, but uh, 125 million people believe in it. 70 million people in the U.S., it's quite shocking, read their horoscopes every single day. 12 million in the U.S. say that every day they change their behavior based upon their horoscope. And it's kind of shocking. In fact, according to one poll, 10% of those people who follow their horoscope say they are Christians and that they believe in astrology. I mean, I don't think that shocks us anymore with where some of the polls are. Certainly within some forms of Christianity in recent years, there was a man by the name of Edgar Wisnant. He published a book that became a bestseller, and the, the title of the book was 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. 
And we're here today. He was obviously wrong. And he boldly told readers that he had unlocked the mystery of prophetic timetable and the rapture would occur sometime between September 11th and the 13th, 11th and the 13th in 1988. And obviously he was wrong. Undaunted though, as that deadline passed, Edgar Wisnant changed the date of his prediction and wrote a new book. And the new book was 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 18 or 1989. He was wrong again. We're still here. And so we've seen people, you can talk about astrology, but some people take prophetic uh, literature such as Daniel and they go way beyond the writing of the scripture. One of those men that went beyond was Edgar Wisnant. Another of the men, maybe you've heard of his name, was Harold Camping, who published a book titled 1994, in which he predicted the Lord's return on September 7th, 1994, he did a bunch of things with numerology, he did a bunch of things with scripture, and he repeatedly claimed on his broadcast that his predictions were more than 99% certain. Well, as you know, 1994, he was wrong again. And so we want to stay away from that kind of stuff. However, when it comes to the Word of God, it is always true. Amen? It is always sure. In fact, when Daniel came into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, he said, I can tell you the dream and I can tell you the interpretation. And when he finished revealing the dream and he finished revealing the interpretation, he said, this dream is sure. It's certain down at the end of chapter 2. In fact, here, the Word of God is always right. And chapter 2, I've been saying last week, gives us the most comprehensive, prophetic, panoramic picture ever given in all of the Word of God on the history of human civilization. Listen, I just want you to know we're not guessing today as you hear the Word of God, okay? And that's what we're looking at in this day. Chapter 1, maybe that comes up on the screen, is God's sovereign display, just for a phrasing, over Daniel as they were exiled to that place in Babylon, exiled 605, 587, uh, 605 B.C., 5. Uh, 87 was the one, but Daniel went first. And so God's sovereign. Chapter two is his sovereign display or dominion over the nations. And it runs the whole chapter. Now, as we're looking at chapter four, there is, excuse me, in chapter two, there's a series of four acts that are just kind of unfolding before our eyes. 
We looked at Act 1. I'll just be real brief here. Was the commotion in the king's court. You remember, look at Daniel 2, 2. The king commanded that the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers, four of them, the four titles, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king answered in verse 5. Look down. The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, he meant this literally, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Actually, another translation says placed in a dung heap. And that's what they would do. They would just demolish a home and make it a dung, a dung heap. So he's, he can't sleep at night. There's commotion in the court. And he said, if you do not tell me the dream and the interpretation, I will tear you limb from limb. And in that commotion, the wise men are desperate in 10 and 11, but the decree, the king's decree was firm. And so there's commotion in the king court, king's court. Secondly, there was the second act, the revelation of the dream. Daniel petitions Arioch because the decree went out to kill all the wise men of Babylon, which would include Daniel. And he wasn't in that opening segment. We knew that they had passed three years of training. Maybe he was just young at that point. They had a number of sorcerers and enchanters and so forth. And at this time, he was about 18 years of old. And so he makes a petition and goes into King Nebuchadnezzar and says, give me time. And then as soon as the king granted him time, he goes out, he gets his friends, they go into a prayer meeting. And ultimately, that revelation, if you look at verse 19 there, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision in the night. And then that, that revelation led to his praise. And in fact, look what he said in verse 28. There is a God in heaven who reveals mystery, mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Now that phrase, latter days, uh, speaks, it's an important word in the Hebrew. It always refers to the future in general. But when he says he's going to reveal to you, king, in the latter days, he's also including the days of the Messiah and the final period of human history before the eternal state is set up. So here, he's very quick that in all the centuries of the future, he is going to reveal human civilization to this king. Not just the next four kingdoms, which he will give prophecy about, but he's going to take you from King Nebuchadnezzar all the way to the end of the world. Listen, beloved, in Daniel 2, no dream ever before this and no dream ever revealed after this has as much world history as this one, okay? It covered from Nebuchadnezzar's day to the end of the world. And what follows is one of the most exciting prophecies in all of the Word of God. You can't understand Revelation 
without understanding Daniel. So we find ourselves, if you're visiting with us, we just exposit from book to book <laughs> to book. If you're new today, what, what's our church about? It's about a number of things, but we're just expositing and we're going through this book. And so I bring you now from the commotion to the revelation of the dream to act three, because it's, it's not been spoken yet. Daniel says, I got it from God, but here I bring you to act three and we'll pick up the text, the interpretation of the dream. It will run from 31 down through verse 45 and the interpretation of the dream is seen in two lines of thought. Now listen, I probably don't need two lines of thought. I could probably just give you it. In fact, we don't even really need an outline. Technically, it's a narrative, but I give that to you so that you can follow it. Commotion, revelation, interpretation, two lines of thought. First, the dream is revealed. The dream is revealed. Look at verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, the the image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and its arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you looked and a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. There's the dream revealed. Let me, let me just put it, it, paint it for you, okay? Because it was this dream. This statue was massive. And it could have been that he was so frightened in his dream that the text says there in 31 that he stood before it. And just imagine it, night after night, though he conquers kingdoms, he can't conquer his dream. And there's some thought I mentioned to you that did he understand the dream? Did he, did he see the dream and he wanted his chanters and sorcerers to interpret it? Or there's some who believe he didn't even quite understand the nature of the dream. So how could he interpret it? And he told those wise men to do both and they couldn't do it. But in this dream here on the dream revealed, it's massive. The text says that its appearance was awesome. In fact, the root of the word for terrified means to make one afraid. He's having this dream, dreams, plural, and this image comes up and he is just frightened, frightened. Terror grips his soul. It says in the text that the statue was bright. It was dazzling gold and you can imagine that and he's watching this dream and it is you recognize in the appearance of a man 
It's, it's a statue of a man in, in the reflection that I read. And I think that's fair because the Bible in the Gospels speaks of the time of the Gentiles. And the time of the Gentiles started in this book. The time of the Gentiles started in 605 BC when that first deportation took place. And the time of the Gentiles runs all the way to the end of the world. And I can tell you about the end of the world. But he sees this statue, it's massive, it's in the form of a man. And what he's gonna do, as I mentioned, give us a panoramic sweep the entire history of human civilization is spread before us in this dream from the days of Nebuchadnezzar to the end of time. Now, as I read, and you can read on your own, its head uh, of stone was gold, okay? Its breast and its arms were of silver. It's not hard, okay? I don't want to make this too much of a mystery. Its belly and its thighs were of bronze. Then two legs descend down it. And at the bottom, there's his feet of iron and they are mixed with clay. So this statue, though inspiring, was not permanent. Because Nebuchadnezzar, in the midst of this dream, sees a stone cut out, and it's cut out without hands. In other words, the stone has a divine character, and all of a sudden, this stone comes out, and it crushed the statue. The statue became like wheat, just blown away on the threshing floors. In other words, the stone came and pulverized this great statue so that it vanished. In other words, in rapid succession, the statue, the great image, dazzling and bright, comes down like a card house, okay? The, the stone grew then into a great mountain that filled the entire earth. And listen, if you're Nebuchadnezzar and you just put out the death order and Daniel says, I got it, king, but it didn't come out of my own imagination. There is a God in heaven who reveals dreams. Can you imagine what Nebuchadnezzar was doing when as he began to talk about the stone and the arms and the thighs and, and the legs and he, he must have stopped and maybe I could do it by face. I think he was like this. That's it. That's it. He had told no one. Maybe he couldn't even put it together. But as, he's, as Daniel's in the revealing of this dream, I imagine that he is shocked. So whatever this image is, it's revealed. But here under this second point, the dream is interpreted. Because not only did he see the statue, but of course, what does it mean? How do we interpret that dream that he saw, which is funny that he gave a pagan king the greatest revelation of 
to the end of the world in all of the scripture, but it's the time of the Gentiles. Nebuchadnezzar was ruling the known world. You say, well, what did the interpretation reveal? Look down, follow with me. This was the dream, what he just said. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom, isn't it interesting? No respecter of persons. To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. I don't know if, you know, Daniel's a prophet. He's repeating the words of God here. He just wants the king to know you may be in control of the known world, but you're only in control of the known world because almighty God, the God of heaven, has put you in that place. Same thing is stated in 1-2. Look at verse 38. And into whose hand he is given, whomever they dwell, the children of men, the beast of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them, and you are the head of gold. Interpreting. Another kingdom, verse 39, inferior to you, shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, verse 40, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like, the, and like iron that crushes, it will break and crush all these Here's the interpretation. The word kingdom appears 10 times in verses 37 through 44. And so he's talking about kingdoms. And what he outlines here is four kingdoms that come in rapid succession to one another. And the theme is going to stay the same in Daniel. God is sovereign, we've been saying that, over all kingdoms, all nations, all rulers, all of mankind, and God's kingdom will outlast every other kingdom and will smash and pulverize and blow it away. That's where he's going. You say, okay, then what are the four kingdoms and the dream's interpretation. Let me give those to you from the word of God, okay? What are those kingdoms? And I'm gonna fly high here um, because I'm gonna come back to it when Daniel the writer comes back to it in chapter seven and eight. So I'm gonna mention them, and I told you at the beginning, he overlays this prophecy with fuller prophecy in seven and eight. So I won't say everything here, but there's four kingdoms that come in succession. You say, well, how did he know that? Prophecy. He wrote, I told you, in the sixth century. And he's gonna tell you exactly what's gonna happen in the fourth century, in the second century, in the first century, and down the end of Daniel all the way to the end of the world. So let's, let's walk. What is the interpretation? There's four kingdoms. A, first, the first kingdom is Babylonia, okay? Or Babylon, or the Babylonian Empire. It's known as the head of gold. Look at the text again in verse 
37, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and whose hand he has given whatever they dwell, the children of men, the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. And here it is. You, going to be clear, are the head of gold. In other words, this statue, there's a head of gold. It's, it's you, Nebuchadnezzar. It's you. You are the head of gold. It's interesting that probably in all these metals that are cited, gold, of course, is precious and gold symbolized Babylon. The historian Herodotus visited Babylon after even the fall of Babylon, and he reported that he had never seen so much gold as what he saw in Babylon. He described the temple idols, the vessels, etc. He said, did Herodotus, that it was more than 22 tons of gold. Just gold everywhere. This guy was an absolute ruler. In fact, if you want later today, before your nap, in Isaiah 14:4, Babylon was called the golden city, okay? It becomes obvious in verse 37 that Nebuchadnezzar was given the kingdom, given the power, given the strength, given the glory by God himself. In fact, Daniel said in his prayer in chapter 2, in 21, that he removes kings and establishes kings, Nebuchadnezzar ruled over man as well as beast, as well as birds of the sky. Ezekiel, it's interesting, referred to Nebuchadnezzar in Ezekiel 26.7 as the king of kings. Now we know the Lord is the ultimate king of kings, but in terms of humanity, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of kings. And beloved Babylon ruled for about 80 years and you say, well, what happened? Well, don't miss. I'll tell you in the coming weeks exactly what happened. And I'll tell you in chapter 5 when the writing is on the wall, it just fell apart in one night. But here, the first kingdom, enough, the Babylonian Empire write this down, is the head of gold. It says that directly. But look at 239. But another kingdom, 39, inferior to you shall arise after you. Now, this next kingdom, back up into 232, its breast and its arms were silver. This is the Medo-Persian Empire, which began when Cyrus devastated Babylon in 539. So though you're the head of gold, you're not forever, because after you is coming another kingdom that we identify with Medo-Persian, a Persian, it supplants Babylon as the next coming ruling nation. Its breast and its arms, I mentioned, were silver, and we think there's a twofold division there. It's made up of both the chest, the breast, and the arms, okay? Why? Because it's a kingdom run by the Medes and the Persians. 
You say, well, how do we know that? Well, I don't want to just state that. Look over at Daniel 5 just for a second. We'll look at this on the writing of the wall. When he said, I'll just take you to the end of it in 527. Here's what the writing said. Tekel, verse 27, you have been weighed in the balances speaking to Belteshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. You've been, can you imagine that? You're at a party. They got the vessels out, the vessels they took out of Jerusalem that they, when, when King Nebuchadnezzar came in, he said, I'm going to take this Steinway, making that up, I'm going to take all the vessels. He travels them all the way back to Babylon and then in some drunken night where they're using the vessels that came out of God's holy temple, a finger of God begins to write on the wall. I think they were shocked as Nebuchadnezzar. What did it say? You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Watch this. Perez, your kingdom is divided. Here it is. And given to the what? The Medes and the Persians. Now, we're looking back on history. Daniel wasn't. He's saying after you, Babylon, here's after you, Nebuchadnezzar, there's going to be another It's going to be inferior to you and it's going to be described as such and you say well when did it begin well you know exactly when it began in 539 BC how do we know that pastor look at 531 Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old we know this from history there's no confusion there at all it is the, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. It extended. It's interesting. Babylon went about 80 years. And then they came in and the Medes and the Persians go over 200 years from five, if you want, 39 to 331 BC. They developed this strong, powerful kingdom, uh, a large, vast system of taxation and it was to be paid in silver. We know that. They had, just as Babylon had gold, the Medes and the Persians had hordes of silver. But here you note, as it's stated, it's viewed as inferior. Inferior, beloved, not so much in terms of length of years. It was longer than Babylon. Not so much in terms of even size of army. Medo-Persia was larger than Babylon. It's interesting, Greece, who will come next, was inferior in, uh, uh, as well. It was larger than Greece, but inferior in terms, here the Medes and the Persians, of their united power base, which characterized the Babylonian empire. In other words, there was no king like Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of kings and the, the one who ruled the world and he ruled it with his own ability. It was him. The Medes and Persians come in. It's longer, even boasted of a greater army, but it's inferior, inferior to Babylon in terms of authority, in terms of organization. So the first kingdom is the Babylonian empire. It's the head of gold. The second kingdom is the Medo-Persian empire. Its arms and the breast were of silver. And then the third kingdom, look, it's there in verse 
39, go back to chapter 2, it says, and yet a, says that, a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. Here it is, it's the Greek empire. And we know that from history. I don't, nobody's doubting this. This is exactly what happened. And we can look back and go, we get that. But I want you to know, Daniel's interpreting it hundreds of years before it ever happened. So there's a third kingdom. How do you know this third kingdom is Greece? Well, we're always going to let the Bible do the talking for us. Go over to Daniel chapter 8, and we'll come to this at a later time. But in Daniel chapter 8, you'll notice here a little bit, it's another vision, another dream. And here, we'll look at that later, but in 820, as for the ram you saw with two horns, these are the kings, there it is, of Media and Persia, that's the second kingdom, and the goat, next in 821, is the king of what? Greece. And it's exactly what happened. From gold to silver to now the middle and the thighs were, were it says of bronze, if you will. Bronze represented the Greeks because uh, maybe even in in a historical analysis, the soldiers' helmets and their shields were made of bronze. And what's interesting of Greece, that's, that's my background, I'm Greek, at this point, they conquered not only the Medo-Persian kingdom, but the Bible says what we just read, they ruled over all of the earth. Say from when? Roughly 331 BC down to 63. The Bible says they ruled over all the earth. Who was their leader? Do you remember in history? It was a man, it was a Greek by the name of Alexander, what? The Great. He ruled over the whole known world. And it's been said in biographies and historical writing that after he conquered the, the known world, he wept because there was nobody else to conquer. Say, how old is he? He's in his 20s. Can you imagine? Oh, Alexander, what's, what's, what's wrong? There's just nobody else to kill. There's just nobody else to, he wept. He's in his late 20s, and I think I've shared with you, he died in a drunken stupor at 33. But here Daniel's rolling it out. You're the head of gold. Then after you is going to come a people in an empire of silver, the Medes and the Persians. But then there's going to be a third. And the third, and this is all history for us, was Greece. And he wept because it was, there's no one else. To, to rule over. He ruled, did Alexander the Great, from Europe to Egypt all the way to India, okay? And it lasted about 185 years. And you say, well, what's significant about this? I'm telling you, 
He wrote this book in the sixth century. He's looking down the corridor of time. How would he have known? He wouldn't have known unless God interpreted and revealed the dream to him. But he's telling you about Alexander the Great 200 years before he's on the scene. This is a phenomenal prophecy. And maybe I could just interject here. If he's right here, he's not going to get the end wrong, right? He's going to tell us what's going to happen. And so here he's prophesying, but that's not, there's another one. Look at 240. 240, it says there that, and there shall be, just rolling it out, a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And the iron, uh, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush, interesting, all these. There's a fourth kingdom. And the fourth kingdom we know and universally accepted was the Roman Empire. They are the one that Daniel spoke of in 233 that had legs of iron, but its feet were partly of iron and partly of clay. Here, this fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire. Rome had legs of iron. It was the, at that point, the strongest metal of the day. So strong was it in verse 40 that it will crush all things, it will shatter all things. What's interesting, and you can read this on your own, because I'm just trying to help you read the Bible, is that this fourth kingdom becomes the focus of the dream's interpretation. I say that because there's more info on this fourth kingdom than the three previous kingdoms that are combined. Five times it uses in the text words like breaks, two times, shatters, breaks in pieces, crush to declare the awesome power of the Roman movement. The Roman armies, again, I think you know this, were fitted in iron and they were known as the, as the Iron Legion of Rome. Interesting. They were powerful. They were invincible for years. In fact, I can't go into all of it with you. You could read that in a history book and the history of Rome, but in a series of three wars, the, Rome, the Romans gained control over central Italy. They defeated the Carthaginians, and 50 years later, after becoming the most powerful force in the West, Rome became the mightiest state in the East. They conquered a king by the name of Philip V, who was the king of Macedonia. Rome then went out. They're not done. They're conquering. They went out and, and against Antiochus III. We'll meet him later. King of Syria and defeated them in 168 BC. This gave all North Africa to Rome. The Roman Empire was the strongest empire the world has ever known. That's the fourth kingdom. Th think about it this way, big picture. The Babylonian kingdom lasted 70 years. The Medo-Persian and Greece 
Empire, not much longer than 200 years. But the Roman Empire lasted more than 500 years, all the way until 1453 AD, okay? And then the Turks defeated them at Constantinople. But they were strong, but Daniel says they were weak at the same time. He said, strong and weak? Yeah, iron and clay. How were they weak? Look at the text in verse 41. It says there, and you saw, it's telling him the dream, the feet and the toes. Now, I don't want to get into that. I'll say more on that in a couple of weeks. Partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom will be, there it is, partly strong and partly brittle as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay so they will mix with one another in marriage but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. If you take iron, if you take clay, you can do this as a science project and you heat them in a crucible, you heat them to a melting point and you pour the iron and the clay into a mold, when the elements cool, iron and clay will separate from each other. In other words, you're gonna be strong, but you will be deteriorating, okay? And in other words, Rome is a divided kingdom. It's both strong and it's also brittle at the same time. And then Rome, it says there in the text, intermarries with other nations. And I think he means to say they're losing their solidarity. The more diverse they become, the more complex they become. And it, be, and it leads, if you will, to their weakness and their destruction. Now, there's more to say there. But let me give you the so what. So what does this mean today? Okay. Number one. Maybe just a few key words. It's obvious as I exposited. Deterioration. Deterioration. These human kingdoms that think they're so great and so powerful, at least looking back, are fragile. They're brittle. The government, even today, is on shifting ground, is it not? And I think Daniel's showing us these kingdoms, these four that come in time, but it brings about a, a, a picture that they come and go. One is raised up, another is put down, and most of these kingdoms are built, though maybe strength at a certain point, are build, built on a foundation of clay. They're fragile at best. I mean, you can just see it. You can go back and read it. Nebuchadnezzar is the single head of gold. Monarchy. Okay? Then what flows is two arms. Why? Medo-Persia. Then Alexander the Great comes on. 
And if you know the history, they soon divided all of that kingdom into four different rulers. Then Rome begins with two legs of iron and eventually descends into ten toes and of iron and clay, the whole movement is downward. The whole movement is deteriorating. I mean, I don't know another way to say that than to say that people who are affirming Christian nationalism and the takeover of whatever that might mean, when I'm reading my Bible, it is deteriorating, always. It's moving towards the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you say that, some are going to say, Pastor, you're so negative. We should stand up. Yeah, stand up and fight all you want. But there is a deteriorating uh, devaluation of all these materials that we find. The gold turns to silver, the silver into bronze, the bronze into iron, the iron into clay. Deterioration is woven into our very existence. Human kingdoms today are in the process not of evolution, they're in the process of devolution. That's why we dedicate parents. I mean, if you just look where our world has gone in the last, forget our world. If you look at where the state of California has gone in the last 10 years, you you say, well, what's our hope? Our hope is in Christ, amen? Our hope is in his coming kingdom. We are not evolving. A degeneration in value and solidarity is what we look at and see. Listen, when Target starts promoting that filth that they are, I I heard they lost $9 billion in two days. So far from getting better and taking over, you are looking at the fallout of a civilization upon which I was with John MacArthur a couple weeks ago he said, there's no turning back. I was typical of John. Like, what's he going to say? Coming out of his sickness. Well, you're looking at the death of a civilization. I'm like, okay, you know. It is. I mean, look what, look what is going on. What starts in grandeur ends in weakness. What appears dazzling deteriorates. What begins in fear ends with feet of clay. Human government empires is so fragile and brittle. That's number one, deterioration. Let me finish here and say the interpretation of the dream is a miracle. (laughs) He wrote in the sixth century, and God predicts in accurate detail, the future kingdoms that would arise to dominate the world history in the 6th century BC, in the 4th century, in the 1st century, and all four kingdoms were fulfilled prophecy. You say, well, okay, Scott. This is why some people want to date the book in the 2nd century, because they just don't believe that Daniel could have seen this. So they dated the second century. So instead of recording prophecy, he's merely reciting what happened. But as I did on message one, sixth century is the date for this book. 
You say, okay, Scotty interpreted history. Let me just remind you. He's 18. And when Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, Persia was merely a Babylonian vassal state. Shocking. The Greeks were a group of warring tribes. That's it. They're not some empire. And Rome was a little village on the Tiber River. Listen, here's Daniel saying, no matter how it appears, God reigns. He controls the kingdoms of this world. So well, what will happen in the future? One last thing. Look at verse 44. I prayed, Lord, help me exalt Christ. In the days of those kings, we'll have to talk about what that means. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdoms be left to another people. There's no next. He shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. God rules today in our hearts, but there is a millennial kingdom where he will reign for a thousand years. You say, well, tell me more about that kingdom. I'll see you in two weeks, okay? And then we'll look at it.